Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Um, or Acts 8, verses 1 to 8, and then 26 to 40. So join me. Just listen, grab your Bibles, whatever. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Now up to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah and the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along on the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found him at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay, so let's start with Augustine. Augustine is this ancient Christian. And uh, if you haven't read like Confessions by Augustine and some of his works, do it. It's accessible even though it's old and it is wonderful and it'll nurture you for a long time. Because despite the fact that 1,700 years have passed, he remains incredibly relevant today. But Augustine, in his life, um, very clever man, very philosophical, very bright, arguably one of the brightest men ever to live. But before he became a Christian, he was very sensual. 
He loved wine, women, and song. And he had this mother named Monica. And Monica faithfully prayed for him to become a Christian for 17 years. And prayed, and prayed, and prayed. And he slowly started to accept Christianity, at least intellectually. And it came not just slowly, but also when he went to see here a guy named Ambrose of Milan, the Bishop of Milan, he went to hear him speak, not because he had any interest in Christianity, but because he loved rhetoric. He loved speaking, and he wanted to see this great speaker. And he was moved. But he writes in Confessions, I had now found the priceless pearl, and I ought to have sold all that I had and bought it, yet I hesitated. And so he wavers like many people uh, for a long time, deciding, you know, I know I should give up my old life and embrace Christ, but I really don't want to. <laughs> he enjoyed his sin. And he, he prayed and he wrote in this confession so honestly something that if we were honest enough, we probably would admit we would have prayed the same thing, but we probably wouldn't dare tell the world we prayed it. And he said this, Give me chastity and self-restraint, but not yet. Because he loved his sin. He was struggling. How do I do it? How do I give this up? I don't want to give it up. I know I should, but I don't want to. And what eventually ends up really impacting Augustine is he's with his friend, and they're, they're, he's anguishing at this point. He's really struggling. Like uh, His guilt is overwhelming. And he hears somewhere kids singing. And what he hears them singing is something he's never heard before, but he knew it was the kids. He couldn't figure out if it was next door or where it was. But all they kept singing over and over was, pick it up, read it. Pick it up, read it. Pick it up, read it. And so he decides, maybe this is God. So he walks over to his Bible. And as he's done, what so many people have done, which I don't recommend doing, but he just kind of opens it up. And what he opens it up, the first verse he looks at is Romans 13, 13. That says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. And so at this point, he writes in Confessions, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. And so, the father of the church is born. And what we see happening to him is his story. And we talk about stories a lot here. All of our lives are stories. You're, when you're born, you're not a brand new story. You're born into a flowing current. You have a family, a history. You're born into a country and a context. So you find you're a character all of a sudden in a story that has existed long before you and will exist after you. And your story regularly meets other stories at intersections, at crossroads. In fact, why do we call it a crossroads? Why do we say the moment of choice is a crossroads, it's because the path you're on all of a sudden is confronted with the possibility of an alternate way, a different way. And like most intersections, you have the option. You can just plow right through it, or you can stop and take those routes. And sometimes the answer is to plow through, sometimes not. But whatever happens in our lives, and these crossroads are not always what we would think of mammoth with God speaking, but sometimes it's just people you meet and different stories cross your path. And inevitably, those stories will always influence you. And they usually influence lives in four different ways. Um, and sometimes only in one of these you'll feel, sometimes all four. But stories with Augustine, for instance, when the gospel comes to him, and, and this is in no particular order, one thing it will do is it will um, uh, challenge. So different stories come and they'll challenge at times and say, are you sure what you're doing is right? And they'll just poke a bear. And for the first time maybe in your life, you're thought to, you start to wonder, Am I, am I living right? Is this the right way? 
So it challenges, but then it can also go deeper and undermine. And at that point, Augustine, for instance, knows not only is he being challenged, but, it's, but what he's being told is undermining the way he saw the world. And it's forcing him to say, you've been wrong and you have to change. That's one. But then what also on the more positive side comes with these stories is they affirm and then they reassure. Affirm, meaning sometimes they tell you you're doing great, keep going. But other times they say, yes, you're a horrible sinner, but you're loved. And so you're not destroyed when you hear these challenges if it's the gospel. And that was Augustine. He knew, he knew he was loved even though he was a sinner, which added to his guilt of feeling, gosh, why would he love me? Why? And then comes reassurance. You're a sinner and I love you, but don't worry because there's hope, there's forgiveness, and you won't always be a sinner if you submit. And so the story comes and it challenges. And the reason I bring this up is for the next three chapters in the book of Acts, chapter 8, 9, and 10, you're going to see case studies of conversions. You have, well, earlier they talked about Samaria, which we'll talk about briefly today. And then you have this Ethiopian, who is radically different from everybody in Israel as possible. You have next week, or in a couple weeks, Saul, this Pharisee who's going to be converted, and then a Roman soldier, Cornelius. And so we're going to see throughout the book of Acts these conversion stories. And you know what's amazing? We hear about thousands of people being converted in the book of Acts, but there's only 11 conversion stories that we hear a lot about, that we get detail on. Luke chose them on purpose. He chose which to include and which ones not to because he was trying to tell us something. And so as we look here, we're going to just really dig into the Ethiopian story. And we're going to see, I think, something incredible. And very simply, we're just going to look at what is his story, what is the counter story that he is presented with by Philip, and then what is the new story that's written. And hopefully we'll see a lot about ourselves and our world as well. So, what's the Ethiopian story? Um, when you read the Bible, there's something interesting happening. You read it at least on two levels. One, you read it as a witness outside of it. You simply see what is happening between Ethiopian and Philip. You see that interaction. But on a deeper level, if you're reading it right, you then have to ask, what is it saying to me? How do I then internalize it? And so first, let's take a few seconds just to look at what is happening in the story. Who is this Ethiopian man? What is his story? Because he's on a path when he meets the gospel. So when we look at it, there's a few different key words we'll just walk through, and you're going to see later how they make sense. First thing we learn about a story is about his place. Okay? He is from Ethiopia. Ethiopia at the time was probably more akin to where the Sudan is. So if you don't know your geography, you've got Egypt underneath it, the Sudan, and then you've got Ethiopia. But we're talking probably closer to Sudan, but still 1,000 miles or more. It's somewhere around 2,400 kilometers away. And so from that far away, it was literally considered the ends of the earth. And we know this because not only does the Bible speak this way, but in Homer, the Greek poet, in his book, The Odyssey, he says, far off Ethiopians, the furthermost of men. This was as exotic as possible. You could not get anyone more removed in the known world. Of course, we know there was a massive continent below, but they didn't really. This was as far as they had really, this was, might as well have been Mars for them. So he's far, he's from far place away. It's not just a question of place, it's also a question, however, of race, because he is almost definitely a black African. And even in that culture, even in Israel, which was somewhat metropolitan, it would, he still would have stuck out like a sore thumb in Jerusalem. So he's a black African from Ethiopia. Then the question is culture. His culture is so radically different. 
because the clothing would have been different, the morals would have been different, the customs would have been different. And there I even say, and if you've been a missionary, you know this, his Jewishness would have been different. Because we all assume, it's, if it's funny, as a Western church people, we, I think we think sometimes that this is the right way to worship. And so when we see different worship from different cultures, we wonder and say, uh, it looks a little bit, a little bit uh, not for me. And we fail to realize that Christianity is not a Western religion. It's a religion of the world. And so his expression of Judaism may have looked different. And if you don't know what I mean, just sit in on the Korean church that comes here. Sit in on the Spanish church. Go to a, a, an ethnic church somewhere in the city. We know, I know people who are running ones just for Hindu converts in Niagara Falls. And you're going to see, yes, there's the elements are all there. But the expression is very different. The music is different. The way they pray, the way they cry out, the way they kneel and stand is very different. And we want to sometimes think, that's not the right way to worship. Be careful with that. <laughs> it's not quite right. So his culture is radically different. His place, his race is different. And then his, there's a sex, sex issue here. Like it or not, he is a sexually altered human being as a eunuch. Meaning, it was very common in the ancient world that officials would have be castrated. Because even in the ancient world, they understood that men without testicles, pardon guys, I have to say that word in church, um, were less aggressive and less threatening. And so they often castrated officials who had close contact with the royal family because they wanted to keep the royal family protected. And so this is not uncommon, but there's something very interesting happening here, which I'll talk about in a second, but before I get to it, I have one more thing. So he's different in that regard, sexually. Second, the fifth, I don't know what number it is, there's a commitment. His, that level of commitment is incredible. To get to Jerusalem, he would have had to have traveled for five months, and then five months back home. So he's taking a year, and this is a dangerous trip through desert and, and everything else he has to deal with, bandits, etc. So he is committed. He owns scripture, which is very rare, and he's reading it. And so we know he's a man who is, like, not only is he committed to this faith, but now is the more interesting part, is this privilege, right? So he's also a privileged man. He's incredibly wealthy. We know that. He has power. He has education. He's a treasurer to who, Candace. Candace was not the name of the queen. Candace was like calling somebody pharaoh. What you called queens in the dynasty of Ethiopian, when there was an Ethiopian queen, she was a Candace. So Luke, whether or not he's saying her name was Candace or not, we know is like calling somebody pharaoh. His name wasn't pharaoh, that was his title. And so he works for the queen, is incredibly privileged in his own culture, but we also know he's not privileged, he's excluded in Israel. Because Deuteronomy 23 is very clear, and he probably would have known this before making a year-long trip. You cannot be a part of the people of God, the assembly of God, if you are castrated. And so, if he didn't know this, then he goes all the way to Jerusalem and finds he cannot participate in the temple worship. Maybe they would have let him into the court of Gentiles if nobody, if nobody knew. I don't think they were checking. I'm sorry, I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> I don't know if there, I, don't, I know nothing of scripture that says that there was a checking for that sort of thing. So he may have been allowed in the court of Gentiles, but probably not. Probably not. And so if he did know he couldn't worship, think of the commitment then. Here's a man, humble enough and brave enough to convert. Because remember, converting in the ancient world means accepting other countries' gods and forsaking your own. And so this is a pretty bold, humble, proud, good, a good man by all accounts, who then 
possibly takes this massive trip knowing he's never going to be able to worship with him or be accepted as a full Jew, but he wants so badly to be near God and near his people that he's willing to go, even though he knows he's not welcome like everybody else. That's an incredibly powerful testimony from this man. Now, here is what is interesting. We now know the story. Here's a man who is looking, like there was a lot of religion in Egypt. There's a lot of religion in Ethiopia. Go to Africa and you'll see now there's plenty of indigenous beliefs. He didn't need to go elsewhere to find religion. But he instead says, I'm going to go. Israel has the truth. Now, this is his story. A man who is searching for longing, and he's longing for belonging and for a home, but he excluded from it. And yet, this is what's interesting, and yet the gospel, when it comes, accepts him. The, God, the, the man who is rejected otherwise is accepted by Christ. Now, we'll get into exactly why in a minute. But let me point out how, now as we take this story to our modern context, why it's so relevant today. Because issues like diversity, race, sexuality, privilege, religion, worldview, you hear this every day in our culture. And so what is fascinating today in Canada is there's an assumption that Christianity is intolerant and exclusive, and that, if anything, Canada is trying to be an inclusive country, allegedly. And they're trying to be a tolerant country, and the Christians are far from helping or actually harming because they're such bigots. This is generally the acceptance. And if you don't think it's general, this is a, a non-statistical statement, but it's my experience. And watch the media. You'll see. And so what's fascinating about that is how much this seems to contradict it. And not just that. Let me use some data here. Because, you know, if you look at all the world religions, the major religions of, of the world, something interesting starts to pop up. Every other religion finds that today, in modern, the modern world, its adherents, the people who believe that religion, still live very close to where that religion started. So, for instance, Islam. In Islam, 96% of Muslims live in the Middle East and North Africa. The rest are scattered around the world, surely, but 4% only. If you then move towards Hinduism, 99% of Hindus live in, in India and Asia. Very few outside. Um, Buddhism, 98% of Buddhists live in Asia and in the South Pacific. When we then turn to Christianity, however, 10.6% of Christians live in North America. We're the smallest group, by the way. But we think we're the biggest, aren't we? Don't we? We're the smallest. South America, 24.3%. Europe, 22.4%. Africa, 26.5%. Asia, 16.2%. Now, why is it that Christianity alone, alone, has gone intercultural? And why is it that they seem to be the ones, this one religion seems to be the one that can embrace every culture differently? And some people, the cynics, would say, well, it's because they're violent and they've coerced people to believe. Uh, listen, I'll be kind. That's the dumbest thing you could say. Christianity is not innocent. My goodness, certainly not. But what you're going to notice is this. The number of Christians in the world has quadrupled in the last, four, uh, last 100 years. Not once. When you, tell me where you're going to find mass coercion of, of believers in the last 100 years. In Korea, the number of Christians went from 0% to 40% in 100 years. China, very similarly. Africa, from 2000 to the present day, has not only doubled the number of Christians, but 37,000 people a day are becoming Christian, according to those numbers, from 300 million to almost 700 million today in 23 years. 
Is it coercion? I understand the desire, but I also say this. There were black marks on Christianity, which we cannot pretend it weren't there. We should refute, not refute, we should accept them and then condemn them. What you're going to notice, however, and I don't want to be too polemical here, but Christianity admits it and we grieve it. And what you don't find are other religions that grew by the sword, shall be nameless, don't condemn those that beginning. And so I will push back on this idea because the reason Christianity has grown is not because of coercion. The reason is something different. And the answer, I think, is best found. And, and this, I owe these next few minutes to a different pastor who put me onto this book and this scholar, and both of them are far cleverer than me. But there's this, 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 he's now passed away, but he's an African scholar at Yale named um, uh, Lamin Sane. He passed away in 2019. Brilliant. From Gambia. Brilliant. I read this little book this week. I, as soon as I heard about it, I ordered it and I read it. And he has a very incredibly interesting approach. And he specifically deals with Africa. And when he's speaking about how the church grew in Africa, he says something very interesting. He says, you know, if you watch Africa, you're going to know something. We Africans, he says, we're a spiritual people. If you were born in Africa, you were born into a myriad of religions and spiritual views. There's evil spirits, good spirits, good luck, bad luck, all kinds. They're spiritual people. And now, he says, what's interesting is as an African, when I came to the West, I was told I was coming to the most inclusive cultures the world's ever seen. But the first thing they told me at Yale was, get rid of this silliness about spirits. Get rid of it. There's no spirits. Materialism, naturalism, there's no supernatural. You're not going to make it as an academic if you think this way. And so what he noticed was interesting. He said, it's funny, this inclusive culture immediately wanted me to stop being African. What they wanted me to do was deny the part of me that was beating through all of my people. And so how inclusive was it? And he says, so when we see the growth he says, of the church in Africa. He says, yes, there was missionaries that came, but he actually says missionaries weren't as productive as the translation of the Bible. He said that was the biggest difference because when they sat with the Bible and they read it, here's a fascinating, he says this, people sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not, not remade Europeans. Now, so he's this guy. I can't believe I only met him through his works this week. What he is saying is this. Every other place, every other religion, when they come, they mock you. You come and they say, you can't do this. Scrub this out. You can't do that. And Christians are tempted to do this too. We meet people who are different than us and we say, no, no, that's not how you worship. That's not how you do it. And there's a sense in which we can't just embrace everything. And you're going to see that here. And that's not what Sané is saying. But here's what he does know, is when he met Christ, he didn't see the Western condemnation. The Africans didn't then see the Westerners coming in saying, we know better than you because we got more money and better bombs, therefore we're better. Instead, what they met when they met Christ was one who said, yes, there are spiritual things, but you're thinking about them wrong. So he didn't mock their respect for the spiritual. He embraced it, but then corrected it. And this makes all the difference in the world. And if you want an example, and I didn't get to talk about it earlier, the first eight verses of this passage we read was about Samaria. And when the Samaritans get the gospel, you have to understand what was happening in Samaria. Samaria broke away. It was the northern Israel. It broke away in the 10th century BC. 
And then when the Assyrians took it in 722, they deported all the Israelites and brought in foreigners. And so what ends up happening is there's this mixed breed of people in the north. And they end up developing and, uh, their own religion and grasping different things and putting them together. And so the rest of Israel, the Judeans, the, in the Judah, the rest of it, the Jews, started thinking of them as half-breeds and heretics. They're, they're useless. And it got even worse in the 4th century when the Samaritans built their own temple at Mount Gerizim to worship. And the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. So they were waiting for a savior, a Messiah, but not a Davidic one because David is Judean. So they're waiting for a savior, but not the same. They didn't quite have the same beliefs. So when Jesus meets the woman at the well, look at how he's exactly what Laman Sane is saying. He doesn't mock her for her life of having money husbands and not being sexually pure. He doesn't mock her for her poor worship but he does point her to the right ways to live and the right ways to worship. And that respect to not mock and yet correct is Christian. That is the gospel at work. And Laman Sane is saying, if we understood that better, we'd be far better at converting people in the West. And we don't have to listen to everything anyone says against the West, but sometimes they're right. And so this is the reason. The reason the Ethiopian can hear this story and then accept it is because he realizes while the world rejects him for his everything of who he is, the gospel accepts him and embraces him, though it will correct him. And that leads us to the next thing. What was it he heard? What was the story? What was this, the counter story to the one he'd be living in that Philip brought? And it's important to at least say this. Philip comes in response to God, not because he's a great strategic thinker. The entire mission to the Gentiles doesn't start because the church has had a meeting and a five-year plan. They had no plan, as far as we can tell, to evangelize the world. They were told to do it, but there's no movement on that goal until persecution comes and they're forced out. And then God uses the persecution to jumpstart the mission to the world. And Philip then is seen as responding, and we probably learn a little here from, from this. He's responding to the Spirit rather than planning. And when the Spirit tells him, in fact, the fingerprints of God on this interaction tell us it's a supernatural thing. Because he's the one, through the angel, says, rise and go. And Philip, in his obedience, we are told, rose and went. The Spirit then tells him to run and go join up with that carriage. And every scholar says the same thing, which is I never really thought of. But the carriage is moving. The, the chariot's moving. So he's like, you know, hey, what are you reading? Like, that's weird. But this is, the, this is the impression we get. He's responding faithfully to go. And so right away we know, and I think this eunuch knows, and so does Philip, that this is not a chance meeting. That God has an intention for this eunuch, and the intention is to share the gospel through Philip's faithfulness. And so God is at work in this whole time. But what he is reading is, in, is, is important. He's reading out loud, first of all. Um, and this is not surprising. People didn't read quietly in the ancient world. It's not that they couldn't, but it was weird to do it. And if you, I'm not going to show it here, but I've got quotes from people like Augustine, um, who would watch Ambrose, and Ambrose was, would read quietly, and, and Augustine would say, hey, you're weirding me out. Don't do that. Say it loud. And you see that throughout script, uh, in the ancient world. It was kind of awkward. So this man is reading out loud. That's how Philip knows what he's reading. He's reading Isaiah. And the question he and he's reading about the suffering servant in chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. And the suffering servant is this idea that there is one who will suffer just like a lamb suffers in innocence 
Um, and injustice, uh, he, he suffers injustice at the hands of the slaughterer. And the Ethiopian knows this, like he's talking, who's he talking about? And this was a very settled answer in Israel. At the time, and even today, most Jews under, believed that this suffering servant was Israel. That Israel was going to suffer for the world. And look at their history. They suffer a lot. And so that was the assumption. So when Philip then speaks, Philip is introducing to this eunuch, and the gospel and Jesus introduced something that was utterly unique. And again, I get this from another pastor who pointed out to me, and it's so obvious, and you've heard it here before, but it just struck me. When Philip shows up, we're told, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And it's a lot like the road to Emmaus story in Luke 24, if you know it. And it's, it's incredible, because here we have this inclusive gospel that will take anyone. But look how exclusive it's going to get. I, well, a pastor showed this to me this week, and it's so obvious. It's so exclusive that he says, oh, you want to understand that? There's only one way to understand what the Bible has to say, Christ. Christ is, if you want to use big language, the hermeneutical key that unlocks the door of Scripture. There, if you do not know Christ, you will not understand Scripture, and you will not understand you. And that is exclusive, right? So the world is right when it says Christianity is exclusive. It is. It is limited to Christ and Christ alone. But that exclusiveness is for everyone, which is incredible. It's open to everyone. So Philip comes and says, hey, if you want to understand who he's talking about, here, let me start here and move on. Let me show you how it points to Scripture, how it points to Christ. And this counter story then that he hears is Jesus. Jesus is the counter story to every story we are in, all of them, all the time. And Philip understood this, even if maybe not as directly, but he certainly showed it by responding the way he did. And that story is very simple. The world is rebelled, and to remedy it, God became flesh. And he suffered the sin that the world deserves in order to bring restoration and wholeness back to relationship with God. Simple. And what we probably know, and see this, the story doesn't mock him. Philip didn't mock him. Listen, you don't know anything down there. What do you guys know in Ethiopia? You know nothing about this. You're still chasing yourselves. You're doing all kinds of things. You're still praying to idols. What you need is our sophisticated religion. That's not what he did. He simply told them who Jesus was. That's it. And we know he's reading the book of Isaiah, and it's a long trip. It's five months. He probably didn't have stacks of scrolls with him. So he's probably reading Isaiah. By the way, that would have been a 17-foot scroll. Um, on his lap, I don't even know. So he's reading it. So what we know is this. I wonder, and we don't know for certain, but he has read Isaiah. And I wonder if, if Philip took him two chapters down the road in chapter 56 when this is said, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than the sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And so here we now move into the final point of the new story. The story that he heard, the counter story he heard about Jesus transformed him. And the reason is that he knew, he understood, he had read this before, he knew that one day he would get full membership in the people of God. But he didn't know when. And I say this is relevant today because I've told you, I think I mentioned last week, I, I was at a funeral recently I, I led, and Everybody there was non-believers. But every one of them thought they would see their friend again. Every single one of them knows in their bones that there must be some restoration and renewal at the end. But none of them know when or how. And what the joy of the gospel that Philip brings here to the Ethiopian is this. 
You know it's coming, and I'm telling you it's come. Now is the time. This is All this restoration isn't in the future. It's here now. Now you can stand before God. Now it doesn't matter about your gender issue. Listen, I'm not suggesting that we have gender, what's going on in this world today. Not at all. We need to address it and then present the truth of the gospel in it. But nothing is a barrier to coming to Christ. And the moment you come to Christ, he will then tell you how to live for Christ. Because you notice what happens right after. What does this man do? He runs to be baptized. You know what baptism is? Baptism is saying, I am going to give up my life and start living your life, God. So it means, whatever I thought before about my gender, my status, my wealth, my life, I forsake, and now I'm going to live for you. All of me is dunked. All of me is lifted up and renewed. And so there is a transformation expected. Yes, Christ will accept everybody, but he'll demand transformation. And he won't even, it's not even about demanding. When you see you're accepted like that, you're going to want to change. You're going to desire it. And if you don't, I wonder if we've seen the truth of the gospel. Because look at what he is saying through Isaiah 56 to the eunuch. He basically said, wait, he said, I'll read it directly. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Now, he's literally saying, don't you dare as a eunuch say that you're dry. Don't you dare think that your scars are what is going to keep you from me and define you. Because my son was scarred, and it is a crown of glory to him. And so don't you dare say you're dry. Don't you dare say because you have no kids, you have no inheritance and no legacy. Because I'll put your name in my house, he says, and it'll last forever. And so, you see that? All the things the world will exclude you for. God is renewing and restoring. No wonder he jumps down and says, here's water, why shouldn't I be baptized? He jumps at it. We don't, I assume Philip told him the next step is to be baptized. But we don't know for sure. And so he jumps to be baptized. And the reason is he understood this. The baptism was a two-way sign. He understood that baptism was God, him receiving God's mercy and then him committing to God saying, that I was saddled by what, I, what the world was telling me I was. I was saddled. I believed I was no better than my position or my skin color or my, my testicles. Pardon, that's so terrible for me to have to keep saying that word. But this is it, his life. His history is no more because Christ has given him a new story. And this is why he runs to be baptized. This is the gospel we need to get much better at presenting. That we have to find a way, like Philip does, like the gospel does, like Laman Sane said the gospel has done to Africa, to show them that Christ will accept you 100% as you are, but he will not keep you that way because he loves you. Because love won't allow you to stay the way you are. It can't. It'll always want to make you perfect. And if a husband doesn't want to make his wife perfect, he is struggling to be a husband. Vice, same thing with a wife. Same thing with children. Same thing with parents. Same thing with friends. You should always... Men, I know men especially, we say things like, I married this woman, but she wants to change me. Yeah. Have you looked in the mirror? <laughs> we should all want to be changed. All of us. Into the image of Christ. And God gives us these people to do it. And the Ethiopian is given Philip, and then Philip is whisked away, and the Ethiopian then presumably takes the gospel into Ethiopia. And if you don't know, they have a rich history of Christianity in Ethiopia. We presume because of this story. Excuse me, this story. So if you're a Christian, be humble and be joyful. Remember, this is a man of incredible wealth and power, and he has the humility to say, I don't know what I'm reading here. I need somebody to help me. There's humility, but then there's great joy. Because he is saved, he can't contain and keep anything from God. Christians model that. If you're a skeptic, run to the one who is not ashamed of your past. He's not ashamed. You don't need to apologize in the same way. You have to repent, of course. But you don't need to think that, oh, you know what? 
Christianity is for those people who are a little bit better because I've done things. The drugs I've done, the people I've seen, the things I've said, the things I've done, that's not for me. Don't you see? Is that song we sang, you did not disdain the, disdain the cross. You know what that means? It means he looks at the cross, which is where shamed, sinful, cursed people are supposed to hang. And he looks at it, and he should walk away from it because he's perfect and he shouldn't have to touch it. But he doesn't. He doesn't disdain the shame of the cross. Instead, he embraces it for you. If he didn't abandon you on the cross, my friends, he's not going to do it now because you've messed up your life. He died for you. He loves you. Run to him. Let's pray.